Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners. For tonight's episode, I'm going to revisit, update, and dig a bit deeper into a story that I covered this past October. The story is the drowning death of then-26-year-old civil engineer Andrew Nesdowski. In that prior episode, Andrew's sister Nicole joined us to talk about Andrew's life, his death, and her family's odyssey for answers and accountability. And tonight, I'm going to again welcome Andrew's sister, Nicole Nesdowski, back to the show, and I'm going to ask her what she's been up to since we last spoke about four months ago. And I know there's a lot to talk about. Andrew's story and Nicole's advocacy for him have been pulled into the headlines several times since her last appearance on the show. Her family's battle took a big step forward as a lawsuit against the provincial government has been announced. And separate from that, the battle also got ugly. An encounter at a dog park between Nicole and Ian Rankin, the ex-premier of Nova Scotia, became of interest for both the local news and the RCMP. So let's get into it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, we'll again be joined by Nicole Nazdowski, and our topic will be the quest for accountability related to the death of her brother, Andrew Nazdowski. about four months since our, our last talk on the show and your, la- your last appearance on the show. But for people who don't know your story, let's start with a bit of an introduction. Uh, before we get into the story, though, tell me a bit about you. Who's Nicole Nazdowski? What's your background? Um, well, I have a degree in political science and a degree in journalism, and I've spent the past number of years working in local media. Um and my life was pretty normal, I guess, up until October 16th, 2020. Paul Nazdowski would give anything to get another big hug from her brother. Andrew was just 26 when he died. A civil engineer living in New Brunswick, he traveled to Nova Scotia for surveying work last October, and he drowned in this Nova Scotia Power reservoir. His family was told some equipment malfunctioned and was floating about 100 meters from the shore, and Andrew offered to swim out to get it. It doesn't look like a dangerous spot at all. And my brother was a competitive swimmer. He was healthy. He was six feet tall, like a big guy. Like, he could have swam that at any point in time. And so while you're standing there, it's like, how did that happen here, of all places? And she wants to know why her brother didn't have a boat. To me, it's always been, what's the story behind the drowning? Did he get hit with a piece of equipment or was it because the dam was on? Through her grief, Nazdowski has been digging into the details of her brother's death. Motivated by suspicion, investigators have not done a thorough job. And she says she's found flaws. Nicole Nazdowski questioned if the initial investigator had a possible conflict of interest with Nova Scotia Power and found the autopsy report had the date of Andrew's death wrong and did not note some of the injuries on his face, 
all issues amended after she pushed the people in charge. Labor officials have told her they're considering the information she has brought to them. You want to trust that they're doing their jobs and that while you're planning the funerals and you're selling their houses and you're going through their belongings and trying to pick grave plots and headstones and all of this horrible stuff that we now have to face as a family at a bare minimum, you want to trust that the department and the people who are in charge over there are doing their jobs and they're not. For Nazdowski, the healing process can't start until she gets answers about why her brother is no longer here. So in, in our prior episode, we went through a lot of the story of what led to Andrew being at the dam, um, how your family found out about, you know, what had happened to him in the beginnings of the investigation. We'll go back through it tonight in a bit more detail. But before we do, I just want to get caught up with present day. So... Again, it's been about four months since we last talked. I've seen your name and Andrew's name in the news. What is what is going on today? And maybe I'll just come right out and ask, as I've seen um, an article discussing a lawsuit between your family and the provincial government. What's the story? It's, it's been, I mean, a crazy year and a half, and I've fought really long and hard to try to get the government to do the right thing in this situation and hold the right people accountable and find someone who can even just say so much as this isn't going to happen again, but I haven't. So Mm -hmm. the only option at this point in time is basically to file or have filed a lawsuit against the provincial government for their inadequate investigation in the hopes that that will make them... (laughs) Feel the need to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And w- when we talked last time, we got a, we got through a lot of you know what what brought it to this point with um, the flaws in their investigation and you know the different things you've uncovered as you were you know going through all the information related to Andrew's death. But I kind of want to go back and kind of ca- uh, go back in time a little bit and to see how this develops into the point that the lawsuit is both um, required, but also how things got this bad. So maybe tell me about this is when, when you're, when you first, when your family first learned what happened to Andrew, I would think that the first, like the initial kind of reaction wouldn't be for you to suspect, you know, something negligent or whatnot had happened. At what point is it? And what happened that made you and your family be like, you know, there's more to this. It wasn't an accidental drowning. Um, I think the fact that it happened once before was a pretty obvious indicator right off the bat that there was a clear issue here. When you say it happened once before a drowning death? Yeah, when Luke Seabrook died in 2015 Mm -hmm. and the power company was never held responsible for that death and... Um, I, I came across Luke's story the day that Andrew was, when Andrew was still missing, right? So I, I was basically right off the get-go. I knew that there was something clearly very wrong here. And you didn't know about Luke Seabrook's story until your brother was missing? No, I had not heard of it before. And then I, during the time that he was missing, I was trying to you know, phone hospitals, phone police detachments, trying to figure out anything, like, where he was. And then it came down, like, broke down to he was at the Nova Scotia Power Dam in Sheet Harbor. And then I just, I don't know, the Google train just started then, and I found Luke's stories. and So it was all that quick. So you knew your, your brother, when you say missing, he was last seen going into the water. When you find out about it, he he still wasn't found but you already are like searching and finding related stories. Like, how did do you recall how you came across Luke's story? Just from Googling like Nova Scotia Power, I mm-hmm. think. It was just, like at that time, I was just trying to find anything I possibly could about uh-huh. what was going on. Mm-hmm. And that very quickly came up. Yeah. In his uh, Luke Seabrook story, in when you look at it now in hindsight, I'm assuming you see some similarities between what his family is going through and what your family is going through, but they would have, this all would have happened to Luke 
years before Andrew's drowning. What? How did Luke Seabrook's story and what his family went through prepare you for what you're dealing with? Well, I reached out to Angela Seabrook pretty soon after Andrew died. So that's Luke's mom. Um, because she had gone back and tried to launch a lawsuit against the government after they did their investigation into Luke's death because they didn't find the power company responsible at all. But the power company had left the gates open on this hydro dam. So they clearly did not have a safe work site that day. And the Department of Labor never held them responsible. So his mom went back and tried to hold them responsible. But through her process and the stories that were in the media and talking to her, I was able to learn a lot about what to expect. Okay. And and tell me about that. Because like this whole thing with like safety of dams in Nova Scotia, as well as the relationship between Nova Scotia power and dams, this is this whole world that I think the average Nova Scotian wouldn't realize. Like, what was it that you uncovered about the problems with dams in Nova Scotia that uh, we wouldn't have known? Well, right off the bat, I was, you know, trying to figure out how. How does this happen? Where where did the holes fall into place in this or come in in this story that allowed this to happen? And... So I started Googling the province's dam legislations and trying to figure out, well, what were the rules that were supposed to be followed to find where those holes were. And, I mean, the hole was very obvious because the hole was the fact that there was and is no provincial dam legislations whatsoever in this province. So you can operate that kind of major dangerous infrastructure and have absolutely no no rules around how you do that. And Nova Scotia Power owns most of the dams, so. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I'm reading your story, uh, I've often, and when I say your story, I mean your advocacy and your family's advocacy for your, your brother, Andrew, uh, the Westray Law often comes up. Mm-hmm. So Westray was a mine that collapsed. There was a public inquiry afterwards. Um, and I'm curious how that connects, how the Westray Law connects to what happened to your brother and I'm especially interested because anyone who listens to my show likely is following the current public inquiry that's going on in the Portapic. So I'm just kind of curious how a public inquiry into Westray years ago connects to your brother's story. So, well, the inquiry was, I mean, basically to establish the precedent that there is criminal negligence involved when somebody dies on your work site Mm -hmm. and through the beginning process of this i learned very quickly that that law is widely underused across Mm -hmm. canada it's never it's been used one time in nova scotia Mm -hmm. and the case didn't end up being successful so Mm -hmm. it it was i mean that happened 30 years ago Mm -hmm. they did that inquiry and that all of those rules never had even the littlest bit of teeth to be able to protect my brother through his entire life. Mm -hmm. And I'm still asking right now for the exact same things that that inquiry recommended be used going forward. Mm -hmm. So just like hearing that from present day is kind of of dark and concerning because it's so many Nova Scotians right now are watching two separate public inquiries playing out, thinking that this will eventually solve that these public inquiries will eventually solve major problems. When you hear of our Westray inquiry coming up with this law that has never yet been used and um, being applicable to your brother's story. That's kind of a dark... Yeah, and comment. the argument right from the beginning from them has been, well, that's a piece of federal criminal code. So the provinces have the jurisdiction over whether or not to use it, which is just insane. Mm-hmm. We, we did that inquiry, and we can decide to then not use the recommendations for it. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy 
happy price. Got your happy price, price line. And now I want to back up into the investigation into Andrew's death because I think this is really what what brings us here. So maybe talk me through sort of like the timeline of the investigation. So when when he when when you hear he's he's missing your family you and your family go to the to the site of the dam he's found the next morning um tell me about how the investigation starts and what kind of involvement you and your family would have had with it we didn't have any until i forced myself in so that would have been in march like we were getting we had maybe a couple of phone calls from that original investigator and it was always just we're working on it kind of phone calls so mm-hmm. we didn't really have any involvement um i've of course followed your story in the news one of the early investigators seemed to be uh, featured in many of the articles about your story as uh displaying a clear or what could be described as a pretty clear conflict of interest was this the i believe her name is courtney is this the first investigation that she'd be involved in no i'm no she's been working there for a while okay but her i i looked her up on linkedin right from the beginning and on her linkedin it clearly stated that she was a former mayor employee so she was the only person that was collecting any information on this case whatsoever and she used to work at amera and Amer is the, uh, the parent company of Nova Scotia Power. Exactly. Um, but what would have this Courtney, who used to that you found out on LinkedIn, used to work for Nova Scotia or Amera, which owns Nova Scotia Power? What at least initially was her role in the investigation? That's a right? really good frigging question. Uh oh. Okay. Like I don't. She was supposed to do an investigation. Mm-hmm. She didn't. Okay. Well, not a thorough one. Yeah. Um, and. <laughs> You find out her connection to the parent company of Nova Scotia Power, who owned the dam that your brother died at. How do you raise that uh, concern that you would have of a conflict? Where, where did that go? So I'd started, you know, making phone calls and emailing just about the communication process, really complaining about that and how and the lack of communication basically throughout it. Um. And then when I started calling and adding the point of, I mean, also your investigator is a former mayor employee. So is there a conflict of interest there? Has this been cleared? Mm -hmm. That was when I finally was able to actually get people to pay attention when I really pointed out, you guys have a problem here and I caught you. Yeah. Once you found like some undeniable piece of information and we talked about this in our last episode together, but it only looked worse when... She did she not update her LinkedIn to remove? She that went reference? and cleared all of her former employment on Ooh. her LinkedIn right after it was called out. And I'd asked, you know, if this had been cleared, if this would be cleared. And I was told over and over again that it would be and that it was fine. But uh, and she, as far as like the the, I'll say battle between you and your family and. The government and the investigators, this really seems to be kind of the first big problem that kind of made it a bit more of an adversarial kind of relationship between you and the people who should be investigating. Does that make sense? I mean, I guess, but not really. It was the basis of our relationship, right? We'd had like two conversations with Mm -hmm. them before, so it didn't really change anything. It Mm -hmm. just actually got my foot in the door with them to be able to talk to them because I'd scared them I guess by Mm. catching that and and I went right to Ian Rankin right away with that because at the time Ian Rankin was your MLA he was I think he just became premier at that point in time okay but I went to his office and started complaining about the conflict of interest Mm. and I spoke with his staff or whatever and they put me in contact with the department of labor right away then so yeah so you go to the premier of Nova Scotia, Ian Rankin, looking for help. So again, you're the sister of somebody who died on a workplace site. You're unsatisfied with the communication and with the conflict of interest that one of the investigators have. When you go to the premier's office, what happens? Um, so we were 
I was put in touch with, um, his staff put me in touch with someone at the Department of Labor. They got the department to reach out to me. So the manager of investigations called me and we had quite the conversation. So the manager of investigations for the Department of Labor. So this should be the top person for investigating workplace injuries? Well, I mean, he's the manager of investigations, but I spoke with numerous people above him also. I don't know. It's, okay. It's, well, it's like it's a structure a and a spider half. web mm-hmm. of people. So, but going to this manager of investigations would be important because that would be, he would be the manager of the person with a conflict of interest. Yeah. He was Courtney's direct manager. So how does this go? Tell me about it. The phone call with Scott. Yeah. So his, his, his name name's is Scott Burbridge. Yeah. Okay. Where do we even start with this uh, phone call? And just so I'm clear, you're going to him initially to talk to him about the conflict of interest? And the status of the case in general. I really didn't bring up the conflict of interest oh, really? until like a little ways into the conversation. But it was more so just like, what the heck is going on here? Mm-hmm. Like, um, So Scott Burbage called me. And at that point in time, he told me that they had pretty much completed their investigation and that, you know, he was willing to tell me more than they would usually tell anybody else. And he told me that they had concluded that my brother's company, which was the subcontracted company on site that day, so there was representatives from three different companies on site that day. Okay. Um, they told me that that company was going to be charged with, something that didn't really make sense. And he told me that Nova Scotia Power had no responsibility as the site owner or that their responsibility had been met, their duties had been met. Yeah, and that's that's one thing that makes this complicated is your brother worked for a small company from New Brunswick that was hired by another company to work at a Nova Scotia Power dam site. So. But the structure of that is the exact same with Luke Seabrook. Really? So okay. he was a subcontracted worker that died on the site too. Okay. He told me that they were going to press charges on the co- subcontracted company. And that was because it was their responsibility to have brought a boat to the site that day in case something were to go wrong in the water and the equipment needed to be rescued. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have that boat there. So that was their fault and they were responsible for that. But he also told me that they had been working at another site the day before, which I later found out was another Nova Scotia power site. But at the time, I asked him the question of, did they have the boat at the first site? Mm. And he didn't know the answer to that. Mm. And so I'm like, well, are you sure that they were supposed to bring it? Because it sounds like it was probably supposed to be there because they came from New Brunswick. And unless they lost a boat on the side of the highway on their way to this new site they weren't supposed to have that vote. And so the reasons for why they were going to press charges didn't even check out, Hmm. right? So that happened. And then I asked him about um, whether or not they were looking at the injuries on my brother's face. And And, and just to explain this is the injuries on your brother's face, these are injuries you know about... This is like, this is the craziest thing, right? Like, so we went to the viewing and the funeral home had to come out and say to my family before we went in there, like, we need to warn you, he's had quite a bit of damage to his face. It couldn't all be covered. I couldn't even go in the room. I had to sit outside of the room and this lovely priest came and talked to me about how his twin brother had died in, in a fire and he'd never gotten to see and he, or to see his brother or to say goodbye and he encouraged me to go in the room and like it was just like this heavy, traumatic moment. Mm-hmm. And I know what I saw and we know what we were warned of. And then I asked the investigator, are you looking at these? Like where did you get injuries from? And his response was that there were no injuries. Mm-hmm. But you had this like like life-altering moment where you went into the room with with your brother. Yes, stuff that is just like you're like, what? like there's no denying that. Like I, 
I'm, yes, going through some crazy freaking trauma right now, but, like, we all know what we saw. Yeah, okay. Um, and the, the injuries are also important because the manner of death and how, how Andrew died is, is a part of the story. How he got the injuries kind of raise a question as to what happened because they were injuries to his, to his face. Um, when you're talking to the manager of investigations, how does he respond when you ask him about the injuries? Confidently that there was none. I, I absolutely understand uh, the frustration because I very much doubt there's many hours, if any, in a day where you're not thinking of this. No. So uh, I can answer the question about the bruise. Okay. Um, we did obtain uh, the full uh, autopsy report from the medical examiner and uh, there was no bruise on his face. There was no bruising on his face. I won. I saw his face was entirely bruised. You could see it through the makeup in his casket. All around his eye was bruised. There was no denying it, it was a bruise. Well, I, I can only tell you that uh, we specifically went back and asked that question of the medical examiner. So I'm, I'm thinking if the conflict of interest isn't a problem, at this point you must be freaking out when you hear them say this. Well, yeah, and the fact that I just debunked or, I mean, found the holes in their argument in the court case they were going to present within like two minutes. Mm-hmm. Like you could not... You could not take that argument that they had into a courtroom and have ever been successful. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. So this uh, situation with the injuries sets off this whole other story about the autopsy. Yeah. How does the autopsy and the medical examiner get tied into this? So in one of our only conversations that we had with Courtney, the main investigator, right off the bat, we'd asked her if she was looking at these injuries and she wouldn't say yes or no um but scott told me that after we asked that that they had gone back and asked if there were any injuries to his face and the answer was absolutely no Mm -hmm. and so i asked well will will there be record of you going back and asking this because i like i know what i saw and he said oh yeah absolutely And and i i ended up getting in contact with the medical examiner's office and asked for a copy of the autopsy report myself. And then it was like, oh my God. Because you saw issues with that autopsy. I mean, the date was wrong on the top of it. So yeah, it was riddled with issues and it was just like, well, of course no one's ever going to get to the bottom of this investigation when the document that is the basis of it is full of errors. And the air, the, the two errors um, is the, the date was off by a day, which is important because on one day the dam was open, on the other day it wasn't. So the, the date of death is... Well, here's the thing. Now that I've gotten their internal communications about certain things, I know that they knew that Andrew was dead on the 16th, within an hour of the accident. Mm-hmm. So they let my family go on for 24 hours thinking that maybe he was missing. Mm -hmm. But they knew, and they all talked about it. Mm -hmm. And the police report says it. The initial investigation report says October 16th. The only thing that says October 17th is the medical examiner's documents. Which is like the autopsy and such. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. Uh, In the the autopsy, of course, you were looking at it for details of these injuries. What, with Andrew's face, what happened with that? They were non-existent. There was a mention of like a slight pink abrasion on the upper lip or something and which i mean that was a slight pink abrasion did not describe the kind of injuries that would require a funeral home to warn a family yeah absolutely so it was not laid out properly Mm -hmm. and i called that uh the medical examiners right away and within 24 hours had a new autopsy report released and sent it to the Department of Labor myself and was like, guys. Yeah. Um, and we should get into this where it's um, 
as we go through the story, so much of it is you doing these things like, uh, you know, I got their internal communication. You're sending documents back and forth. Uh, I just want to touch on, the, you said at the beginning, your background, one of the things is journalism. Maybe just talk a little bit about what role journalism and your background in journalism has had on your ability to learn what is happening behind the scenes with the people that should be investigating your brother's death. Mm, I think it probably just made me see this whole situation from a totally different lens right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as soon as we got to the site that day, like, I was in shock, but I also knew that there was probably not going to be very many opportunities for me to talk to these people ever again. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did, like, just right from the get-go was start to collect that information that I knew was necessary I guess and by collecting information tell me about like some of the ways you've been collecting information and holding people to their word well at the beginning it was just kind of collecting information because I just wanted to try and understand what was going on and they weren't telling us anything Mm -hmm. but then the more that I caught them lying Mm -hmm. I just knew what proof to look for to confirm their lies I guess Mm -hmm. like yeah so you're doing things like taking detailed notes, recorded phone calls, FOIPOP, like freedom of information requests. Like you you are basically at this point serving as your own like lawyer research team, it seems. Is that fair to say? I have no idea what you would call me. It's <laughs> something though. <laughs> um, the government has referred you as a hostile individual, but I have a feeling it's more complicated than that. So, I mean, honestly, if you were not hostile in my position right now, you so you get your meeting with the manager of investigations express your concerns about the conflict you learn about the problems with the autopsy and you have that amended uh, to meet reality, which uh, which alone must be rare for, for an autopsy, especially in a workplace injury, to become amended. But regardless, the ne- what what is next? You, I believe you go back to... Well, I, I, it was like every time I talked to somebody at the Department of Labor, I just knew how bad of a job they'd done. Mm-hmm. So I would call Ian Rankin's office again. And the premier of the, the province. The premier, yeah, my MLA, and say, I don't want to talk to these people that your office keeps putting me in touch with. I want to talk to you. I want you to help me with this. Mm. Like, it's not my job to be doing this. And um, I never talked to him, but his office, well, at that point, but his office set up a meeting with the former deputy minister of the Department of Labor and the former executive director of the Department of Labor because they don't work there anymore. But I had um, a meeting with them. And um, in that meeting, <laughs> that's the meeting where Duff Montgomery proved that the Department of Labor was rotten beyond at the friggin' head. So. Yeah, so, and, and just to get Duff Montgomery's connection to the prior Scott Burbridge, the, the manager of investigations, would this be like his boss or something? Yeah, he's the deputy minister. So he's like the top ranking bureaucrat in the Department of Labor. Okay. So if anybody could have done anything about this issue, it should have been Duff Montgomery right then and there. Yeah. Ian Rankin sent me up this meeting with Duff and Christine Penny, uh, the former executive director, and it was horrible. Like, I, I... they, they didn't know anything about the case. They didn't know the date. They didn't know any of the details. Like, they were just there to put in a little bit of FaceTime with me, basically. Mm-hmm. And that, it was just, it was horrendous. Duff sat there with his arms crossed, just smirking at me the entire time to the point that I stopped the conversation to ask him to take me seriously. Ooh. Minutes, I know, but it's been five months, and here we are now, and these are big issues that I'm bringing to the table. I'm not going to sit on these issues, because I've talked to enough people now that, and you can sit there and smirk and whatever it is that you want to do, but you've been in charge for seven years, and you can sit here and say that it's up to you to make sure that the proper people are doing the investigations, and from what I've seen, they're not. When the final report... So this meeting with Duff Montgomery, 
does does nothing for you. No, and I'm try I showed him the changes on the autopsy report and he says to me, "Well, if I was in charge or responsible for the medical examiner's office, then I I certainly would be looking at that. That's not okay." And I'm like, "Well, who does look at the medical examiner then if it's no one else involved in this investigation?" Yeah. So they acknowledge that these issues, yeah, the that's a big issue. But no one can look at it. Yeah, it's almost set up in a way that you can't get access to anybody who can make decisions, even if you're talking to the top person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they could make the decisions, but, but they, they don't hmm. or won't. So at this point, then, you've gone well up the ladder to involving politicians. When you get nowhere with Duff, Duff Montgomery, where do you go next? Then I finally get a phone call from Ian Rankin. Okay, so now you're talking to the premier. Yeah. And he's, I, I outlined basically everything that had happened up to this point, which is everything we've just discussed, which was all crazy that you'd think the premier would have been like, oh shit, we have a problem here. Uh-huh. But his response was, what do you want me to do? Fire them all? And said things like, it's not my role. And I'm like, well, it's not really my role either to be yeah. doing this. I just am limited in what I can do, but I'll do my best to make sure that people that report to me look at this very seriously. Yeah, I would really appreciate that because my brother was 26 years old and he spent the night in a lake. And I'm the only one that's doing anything about it at this point in time. Okay, well, let me just just leave this with me, and um, and we'll have someone come back to you soon. Um, we'll have the new investigator reach out as well. Yeah, so it's it's almost like you go from people who the solution is above them and then all your then all of a sudden you're now with people who the solution is so far below them they don't want to help. Well, yeah, and I just thought, okay, well Ian is the premier. I just start at the top. Yeah. Like I don't have to work my way up from Courtney and her Nova Scotia power corruption to get to the boss, you know? Mm-hmm. Um but nobody cared to do anything about the people working below them. Mm-hmm. And it's around this point that things become public. Am I right? And when you kind of exhaust all avenues on this route, is this? So I, it was like two months of me dealing with the Department of Labor and trying to get them to do the right thing. And then I went to the media. Mm-hmm. And I went to the media because at the beginning of March, I had been told that they were only going to press charges against the subcontracted company. And then by the, like two months later, the court or the case was supposed to go to the prosecutor. And I was then being told that it was the strongest case that they'd ever had in Nova Scotia power or in workplace accident history to hold the power company responsible. And I was like, but that's because I did your investigation. I did all of your work. I mm-hmm. literally changed the full outcome of this entire investigation. Mm-hmm. So I didn't trust them to do the right thing going forward mm-hmm. because even the day before they were supposed to take it to the prosecutor, I was still finding holes in the things that they were telling me. And so the day that they were supposed to do it was the day I finally... I'd already talked to the media up to that point just to kind of fill them in on what was going on. And then the day it was supposed to go, I was like, publish this because I don't trust them. Mm-hmm. There's no accountability here whatsoever. Paul Mazdowski would give anything to get another big hug from her brother. Andrew was just 26 when he died. Going public like that in, in the way you did, how did that affect you know the, the connection and the, the communication you had with the government and with these uh, bureaucrats? Well, I knew it wasn't going to have a good impact, but it, it, it's not like we had a lovely relationship to begin good with. Point, these people yeah. had botched my brother's death investigation. Uh-huh. 
these people had botched Luke's death investigation. My brother could still be here right now if they hadn't done that. So it, they were, Scott Burbridge was talking to me before. And it's funny to see their internal communications because at that point, like Scott was referring to me as a, highly intelligent and composed individual. And then as soon as I went to the media, it was like, this is the hostile individual who has launched a now public attack. And so, I mean, they were, but they were talking to me, but what they were giving me was only what they felt like they had to. Mm-hmm. What's the saying? Admit what, admit what you don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, admit, admit what's known, deny what's unknown and cry. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's the game. Yeah. That's what they did. So you see, you find through your FOIA pop requests, you see them referring to you uh, behind closed doors as a hostile individual. Uh, I understand the relationship between you and the premier's office specifically takes a turn here. In some way, you find out you're unwelcome communicating? So in when the hostile... Indiv- okay, so in that same pop request when they called me hostile is where I also caught them discussing deleting documents in relation to the investigation. Yes. And I knew, and I know, that... The day that they discussed deleting those documents is the same time that I got the autopsy report changed. So the conversations that they were having were around the issues with the medical examiner's office. Mm -hmm. And so when that delete note came out, it was in the middle of the election, and Ian Rankin was questioned about it. And he said that he can't do anything during an election. He doesn't have any power. But he'd already told me he didn't. Ha- it wasn't his role when he was the premier, anyway. Okay. Um, I lost my train of thought. Fuck. What I'm getting into, or what I'm leading up to, is the point where you're no longer welcome in the government. Oh, and- okay. So I wasn't allowed with the go- to talk to the government as soon as I came out publicly because I criticized Duff Montgomery. So Duff Montgomery emailed me and said that. I was, I don't even remember what his exact words were, but I was, I'd insulted Duff's sensitive nature. (laughs) And so I wasn't allowed to talk to the government anymore. And in that email too, he said like, any information that you send us that contains any like rude comments or something will not be used in the case. And I'm like, of course your guys' investigations are going so badly. You have Duff Montgomery's sensitive feelings getting in the way of this information actually coming into play in the course of this investigation process. Like, crazy. Mm-hmm. So when when this happens, when it's... They seem to kind of cut off communication with you around this point or, or aren't as interested in, you know, providing you an audience or whatnot. It seems like that's when things really pick up with with the media, would you say? Like, it seems like the majority of kind of the articles are around this point. Like, is it... I'm just wondering if it's like, I can't... And I'm talking on behalf of you. Is it like, um, I can't communicate with the government, so I'm going to do it publicly through the media? Like, is that kind of how that happened? Well, it's just... It didn't matter what I did or what I said or who I talked to in the government. Mm-hmm. They weren't doing anything. Mm-hmm. So where else do you go? Mm-hmm. I took it to the media. I took it to Twitter. And that's where we got or started to get places. So if it's not obvious at this point, it's everything is taking a very ugly turn. Uh, And whatever relationship is there between yourself and your family with the government is completely ruined at this point, it seems. But being someone who watches the news as much as I do, I know it's about to get worse. Um, Ian Rankin, who was our premier, um, and cut off communication with you, uh, you end up encountering him at a dog park. And this goes so poorly that it actually becomes a newsworthy item. I've seen articles about this dog park encounter. So if you're comfortable talking about it, tell me what happened. (laughs) Divine intervention. (laughs) Oh my God, it was something else. I pulled into the dog park one day and the only other person in that parking lot was Ian Rankin and I look in my rear view mirror and he's standing right there and he spoke to me one time months earlier and then never heard from him again and so 
you darn right I took that opportunity to go talk to him. Um, and it didn't go well. What happens? Well, he right off the bat knew exactly what who I was and that he was getting caught in a really shitty situation here. Yeah, like he's going to be dealing with you now. Yeah, and so I was like, Ian, like I've been trying to get a hold of you. What's going on? And he started the conversation by saying, um, you called me an asshole. I see everything that you send me. Um, and that was his reason for not helping me or something. And I was like, your people have been calling me names for months. Like, where did all of these sensitive men come from? As if all of the shit I already have recorded on you guys is not enough already. <laughs> you know that deleting documents is probably more of a freaking issue than anything that I'll ever do in my life. Deleting government documents into a death investigation. That happened under your watch, right? And you don't care? Yeah, I wanted my brother to come home too, Ian. You know I tried to help you. Setting up a meeting with a former deputy minister is not helpful. You know I tried to help you. So this whole incident involves you and Ian Rankin standing outside of his car. How does it end? Well, I wasn't planning on letting Ian leave that dog park without having a conversation with me. He owes me that at a bare minimum. Like, it's... It's his job to deal with me, basically. Or to deal with the public as an elected official. Yeah. And so I just, I kept asking him, you know, like, what are, what's being done? What did you do? Like, why did you not address the issues of the delete note when that happened under your watch? Your people did that. And he just had really nothing to say besides, I did help you. I did help you. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the proof is here. You didn't help me, mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. In fact, you probably made things worse by putting me in front of someone like Duff Montgomery in mm-hmm. the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, it eventually ends, though. He, how does he get? How does this conversation between you and Ian him called his wife to come and pick him up because we were up the street from our houses, and his wife arrives and he leaves. I go play fetch with the dog, think that everything's fine. On my way home, I see him and his wife driving back to go pick up Ian's car, get home, don't really think much of it, but go to Twitter and just start tweeting about the incident because I was like, my God, like how did that, how did I just run into you? It was crazy. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I started tweeting, then the RCMP called me. Okay. So you get, and there's multiple calls involved in the RCMP, uh, with you and the RCMP. Tell me about the first one. So the first call was from a constable, Stephanie Wagner, and she started the conversation with, there's been a request that you don't speak to Ian. Did you by chance run into uh, Ian Rankin today? I sure did. Okay. Is there a reason why you're calling me? Yeah, so the request is that you don't uh, communicate with him. He, I don't know if he told you, I, I'm be, I've been trying to get in touch with him for a year because my brother died at a workplace site and the government's done a really terrible job investigating it. And so I tried to talk to him about it when I finally actually came in contact with him by chance today. So you can't communicate with him when he's out walking his dog? Okay. Well, he doesn't communicate with me anywhere, so... I mean, obviously, I thought that was a very strange request to be um so you know I, I pushed her on it and I asked you know where did you get my cell phone number issues with not communicating with him I have issues with the RCMP calling me right now and telling me I'm not allowed to communicate with my MLA did he put in a report to you or where did you get my phone number so that that's all that the request is that you don't no longer where did you get my phone number You've been complainant for files. We we have that on record. For what files? If I didn't have your phone number, I would have came to your house. Why do you have my address? Your address is listed under your driver's license. Well, so my driver's license actually doesn't have the address that I live at right now on it. 
okay, well, that needs to get updated because that in and of itself is an offense. Anyways, the conversation was clearly just an attempt to scare me away from ever dealing with Ian Rankin again. But I asked to speak with her supervisor because it was just crazy that they would be making that phone call. Mm-hmm. And Because the phone call wasn't really to say anything to you other than like, we know that this happened, don't do that. Which isn't kind of like, like the RCMP's role. You no, speak. it was, they called me and it was just like, do you want to tell us about the incident? And like, mom, what? Like, yeah. I, it was so weird. Just, it would also, it would never happen with like a private individual. Well, and that's kind of what I said. Like, if somebody's rude to another human being in public, they can call the RCMP and the RCMP is going to pull that person's cell phone and call them and tell them to be nicer. <laughs> like, that doesn't happen. Yeah, exactly. So I asked to speak to her supervisor and I was like, okay, what is his name? And she was like, if he wants to tell you, he can tell you his name. And I was just like, what in the hell is going on here? Mm-hmm. Anyways, he called. And his name was Officer Michael Sims. Okay. Officer No Chill. No Chill is not his uh, position or badge ID. You mean he does not chill out? Because this conversation doesn't go well. No. Officer No Chill has no chill. <laughs> what, um, what went wrong with that call? everything <laughs> um well I, I i asked him like why is this normal is this a normal thing that your police officers do and he just clearly was not used to being challenged by anybody he didn't really have any interest in being called out mm-hmm. for their wrongdoings mm-hmm. and he lost it pretty quickly and you know he i i <laughs> He denied that, like, basically what she'd said to me even had been said. It was just so much backtracking, like, right off the get-go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. MLA, non-MLA. Really? Someone in the public eye, not in the public eye. So do you think Absolutely. it's normal that her request was that I no longer speak to my MLA? That was not the request. Actually, it request was the was request right speak, off the bat. To speak. I have already spoken to the member, and the request is that you speak, not speak to the MLA in the fashion or manner. That's that not occurred. what she said. I recorded her phone. I have it. I have it documented. So I like you guys don't need to already, lie to me. She's documented the same thing. So. Well, and now I'm documenting you yelling at me. You have the right to speak to your MLA. Is there a reason why you're calling me? So the request is that you don't uh, communicate with him. With my MLA? Yes. And what, how far do you get with him? Like, it's obvious in listening to this call, to that call, that you're not, um, you're not going to get anywhere with no chill. How does this end? Um, I think he hung up on me. Mid-spaz. His spaz. Okay. <laughs> Well, it be, I don't know. It just left me with more questions than anything. Like, why would Ian Rankin sick the police on me just like that after an encounter at the dog park? Like, yeah, you're going to encounter some angry people sometimes, probably. You're a politician. You signed up for that. Mm-hmm. This is a pretty big deal, and you've been avoiding it. So, like, I, I mean, nothing was done wrong on my end. But when he did that, it just raised a whole bunch of other questions for me. Like, how can you overstep, like, that kind of boundary that quickly? How do you have the power to do that? To literally, like, sick the RCMP out? And try and intimidate me, just like that. Yeah, and it's pretty clear that's what it was. It was an intimidation And if that's, like, if I'm intimidating as somebody, like, a third of his size, it hardly breaches his shoulders, like... It's a hell of a lot more intimidating to have somebody like Officer No Chill call and scream at me mm-hmm. afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, and just to be clear, too, to put it in context, this run-in between you and Rankin, this is someone you had been trying to reach and trying to include in your, in you know, to get support from for ages. So, and, and also, it's so telling that he recognized you right away. Yeah. So he's well aware of, of your story and that you're. And he well literally looked your... up and said my name. Like, he knew exactly. It was like the look on his face. He was like, shit, there she is. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this happens. Um, 
with the RCMP calling you and it seems like this created some other stories not or some some other problems not so much legal issues but through freedom of information act requests do you learn more about what happened behind the scenes leading to this call well yeah so ian ian's statement to the media after this was that he was advised by um provincial independent provincial security staff to file a report with the RCMP so when I spoke to the RCMP that day, they told me that they got my cell phone number from these files that they had on me, but I don't have a criminal record. Mm-hmm. And the things that they told me that they had were actually like minor things from Halifax Regional Police. Like I'd lost my debit card a couple of years ago and I'd reported it because somebody was stealing money from it. And they had that. And that came from Halifax Regional Police. So there, was, there shouldn't have been anything from mm-hmm. HRP. So it's almost like they'd already had this file started on me. Oh, yeah, they were looking into you at this point. Exactly. So um, they had all this information already, my cell phone, my address, and um, these few incidents. And I asked, like, can I see these files that you have on me? And the next cop wouldn't tell me, like, he wouldn't repeat what was in the file. Mm -hmm. And I was like, they already told me that. Why can't you just repeat it? He wouldn't tell me. And then he told me to file an ATIP for it. And the ATIP process is just so long. It's the federal access to information. Yeah. So I knew that that was just going to be this long waiting process. So I filed for Ian Rankin's internal communications with this independent security staff that advised the RCMP. Okay. And in that, it basically outlines exactly what happened. And it was that Ian filed a police report after I went to the media. So Ian was so unthreatened, it took him like 24 hours to even do this, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I found out that I'm now listed as a person of interest and a security threat and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Which is this, it's like having, it's like a really vague, secretive version of having a criminal record or something. It's like... A third party's criminal record, yeah. Like, whatever this independent security staff is... Is yeah, I think we should all be concerned about how much information they could probably hold about you. Yeah, if you um, ask the wrong questions or bother the wrong people on Twitter, because a lot of what you've done that upsets them seems to be happening like on Twitter with you raising the questions in, you know, in their processes, in your brother's case, in the conflicts of interest. So that brings us to about present day. So. I think like it kind of what we just went through really tells the story where you've tried all the official avenues of something's wrong, help me. The most it really got you was an argument in the dog park with the former premier. Is that like in all of these kind of failings and getting something done, is that really what's got you in this position where your family's only option left is like a lawsuit? I mean, yeah. And the lawsuit is even complicated in itself. Like the way that the workers' compensation board legislations are structured here are so crazy that you you really don't have any rights to representation or to any, you don't have any legal grounds in this kind of case. So because my brother was covered under WCB, he basically for gave his rights to any legal representation if anything happened. Mm. So that's an injury or a fatality. Mm. So without having done all of this work that I did to be able to prove, you know, there are massive holes here in the investigation process, like we wouldn't have had the grounds to go up against a company. But we now, because of all of this work, can say your investigations are bad and you're supposed to be charging the companies. So... I'm now in this position where I'm just trying to hold out until they finally just do what they were supposed to do all along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to just to kind of uh, illustrate how much of an uphill battle this is, you've described it to me as um, it's almost like you're like crowdsourcing a legal team or something of that nature. Like how, how much work goes into actually getting a case to the courts for an average person? it's been a process and a half like it's and it's just not that straightforward like there's so many different issues because this was 
a workplace accident, you have to consider all of the labor laws. Mm -hmm. And because of workers' compensation, you have to consider all of those. And then there's the whole element of negligence, which is like a whole other separate thing to deal with. So like for me to be able to piece this together, it's basically just been me trying to find experts and resources who can answer the questions that I have to fill in a certain hole and try to facilitate this all by myself. Mm-hmm. And what is the end goal? Like, what are you, what is the kind of the best case scenario outcome for this? God, all I've asked for from the very beginning is for them to be able to say, this isn't going to happen again. And it's just not that hard to do. Like, they need provincial dam legislations do that like stop pumping money into these hydro dam projects when you're not putting any like precautionary measures in place to keep the people safe that you're then employing on these sites like use westray laws we have them for a reason why why aren't we using Mm -hmm. them and look at your medical examiner because issues on an autopsy report are gonna screw up Every investigation, he is the start of that investigation. What he says on his reports determines what happens next. If he checks the box that says this was natural, nobody has to investigate. If he checks the box that says this is an accident, people invest. Like he holds so much power, mm-hmm. and nobody will look at him. Mm-hmm. He is also responsible for calling public inquiries. He's involved in that process. He's basically as well. the only one that can do that. Okay. And so I'd spoken with him a lot at the beginning of this, and he really sounded like he was going to help me. But he would never just take a step back and look at the issues that came out of his office. Because his thing was always, well, I'll wait to see what the Department of Labor does, and then I'll see if we have to call a public inquiry, blah, blah, blah. But I was like, it doesn't matter what they do, because you already screwed up whatever they're going to do. So why would you be the one to call and run an inquiry when you need to be inquired upon because your errors mess this up from day one. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. If he were to call a public inquiry, one of the key points would be errors in his autopsy. In the medical examiner's office, yeah. Hmm. And like, why why didn't he just say, I'll look at this. Those are big issues on this. Hmm. Like, if you were a responsible person in that job you would be saying holy shit these errors should not have left my office mm-hmm. um so as as bad and as complicated and troubling and disturbing as this all is something i want to end on is what we didn't get to is at the heart of this is your family's dealing with the loss of your brother you know as a son you describe him as your best friend talk about how Dealing with all of this has distracted your family from simply grieving the loss of, you know, a a young man who was at the start of his life, really. It's just, it's the least trauma-informed approach to an investigation possible, really. Like, you don't have time or even the ability to process anything that's happening when people are lying about the reality that you have witnessed. Mm -hmm. Like, and it's it's all, all another thing that disturbs me as just like a, a civilian and all this is you're needing to dig into these disturbing details of your brother's death that you normally wouldn't. For example, like going through an autopsy, seeing photos, reading these reports on you know his death. It just seems like you're being forced to just drag your nose through kind of the worst parts of it as the government's lying to you. Yeah, it's horrendous and there's things that have happened like like the medical examiner's error on the autopsy report the date being wrong that caused us to have to argue with the graveyard owner to put the right date on his grave plot because his official documents are wrong so like his gravestone was always going to have the wrong date on it because of the medical examiner Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like all of these things you're just trying so hard to get through. And then there's this additional, like, slap in the freaking face. Mm-hmm. I mean, dealing with the medical examiner's office was, and the photos and everything, like, that's ins- insanity. Like, I never, I would not wish that on my worst. But then other things happen in that, too. It's like, 
I realized that his engineering ring he'd been wearing at the time, um, we thought he had been buried with it, but he didn't end up being because, I mean, I saw then on the documents that they'd had it there and like they just lost it, right? Like they, they're they just so negligent in everything. There was no care or respect or compassion or anything throughout this entire process. It was just cold, cold hearts. And it really, really sucked to see that follow a life that knew nothing but the opposite of cold. So what comes next for your family? Like what is it, what is the next thing that you're looking forward to that'll help you get to answers, accountability? To continue doing what I'm doing until they break. Mm-hmm. The, I think that they forget. Like their, their game is to break me. But I've gone through my worst. They forced me through my worst nightmare already. So they're going to have to be the ones to break now and do the right thing. I want to thank you for joining Nicole and I for our discussion surrounding her brother's death. At the time of recording, Nicole's family was approaching the deadline to officially file the lawsuit against the Nova Scotia government. And I'm sure we're going to revisit this story again in the future to follow along with how that plays out. But regardless of that, I'm confident that the noise that Nicole is making will in turn make Nova Scotia a safer place to work. And with that, I'm going to end this episode, but before I part, I have some thanks. First, I want to give a big thanks to Nicole for spending some time with me and with you, the listeners of Nighttime. Secondly, I want to thank Monty Data for contributing the music for this episode. It's a piece called Noir Tokyo. And lastly, but most importantly, I want to give a massive thank you to everyone who listens to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, the show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But with that said, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. So if you want to help take a bit of weight off the show's back, please consider subscribing to the premium feed. Not only does it make the show possible, it'll give you more of each topic than you're going to find here on the free feed as I'm adding exclusive content regularly. So for about the price of a cup of coffee, keep the show alive at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. And on the topic of the premium feed, let me thank the newest subscribers, Melissa, Leela, Kay, and Kelly. Thank you for going premium. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't do it via a premium feed subscription, you can give me a huge hand by simply sharing this episode on social media and letting like-minded friends know what we're doing here. If you have any story ideas or if you want to give feedback on the show, you can reach me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact or find me on social media where I use Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, I'm often live on the Nighttime Podcast YouTube channel. So until next time, take care of each other. Hug your loved ones tight. Let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte.